Hello. Hey friends, I'm going to go ahead and get started because not only are we 10 minutes late, but we're going to quit 10 minutes early so we can get a group picture, uh, which is fine, but it's, a, it's good material. I don't want to skip any of it. If I could invite you to find the outline of 1 Thessalonians, we'll start there. Just want to take a quick look at the structure of the letter. So have your outline, and then um, as you're able, open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me just commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, it's so good to be in this beautiful place with the quiet and the beauty around us. Thank you for friendships, old and new. Thank you for the chance to meet in groups, in small groups, to share in private conversations, in large meetings. Um, this is precious time, and so God, we ask that you would help us to use it well. Please uh, guide our reflections together during this time, and um, help us to develop love and faith and hope that change our character and our actions. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. So if you take a look at 1 Thessalonians, um, this outline I've adapted from Abraham Mallerby um, and some others, but you'll notice um, it's, a, it's a pretty simple structure, according to this outline at least. There's an address and there's a closing. And in the middle, two sections, the first takes up three chapters and it's labeled Thanksgiving. Oh, I'm sorry, the outline's in your packet. If you're looking for it, like where is that? It's a, it's a free sheet in your packet. Um, so Thanksgiving and then uh, the second section labeled exhortation. What you might notice uh, right off the bat is how long the Thanksgiving section is. So Paul customarily begins his letters with with uh, thanksgiving to God for the congregation, for the recipient of the letter. Um, but this is actually a series of thanksgivings that goes all the way through chapter 3. And um, I think that uh, tips us off into something really important about Paul's strategy here, that thanksgiving and uh, Godward orientation is the context in which he, first of all, retells their story together, their common life. Um, Paul speaks about his visit with them, his time with them, and the reestablishing of contact after a period of forced separation. But the context for all of this reflection is gratitude to God for what God has done and is continuing to do. Um, God's name appears dozens of times in this very short letter. It's, um, it's quite clear where Paul wants the focus to be, as much as it will speak about himself as an example, about the Thessalonians as imitators and themselves as examples, um, it's all in the context of life lived before God, in fellowship with God, through the power of God's Holy Spirit. Um, the second section, exhortation, also, uh, even though the exhortations really begin even within the Thanksgiving, this is a, a letter of advice, of encouragement. It's um, directed toward an understanding of what life in Christ means that will issue in a transformed way of life together. 
So I, I don't like, uh, commentators will say, well, there's not much doctrine here, there's a lot of practical advice, but I don't, I don't think that division would have made any sense for Paul. What we think and know and believe and feel about God is intimately connected with our embodiment of it in our life, in our action. Um, when Paul talks about having a mindset that is worthy of Christ or a mindset that models Christ, he's talking about a way of thinking, feeling, and acting. It's a practical wisdom. It's emotion, affection that issues in uh, a pattern of life. Um, then the final thing that you might see here, um, no, you won't see in the outline actually, but um, there's both a look to the, to the past, there's remembering, but there's also, especially in the second section, quite a bit of attention to what is yet to come, to living in light of Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead. So the letter itself um, looks backward and forward in order to orient life in the present. The, um, maybe that's enough general. We're going to jump in. My goal for this session is just to look at the first 10 verses or the first chapter Tomorrow, um, we'll take up chapters 2 and 3, and then the following day, um, 4 and 5. Let me go ahead and read the first section of the letter to you. I'm going to read from the NRSV, um, and then supplement it here and there. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that God has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know, what kind of persons we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. As we walk through this letter, and it's short enough that we can do so slowly, I want to focus our attention on a number of things, and there'll be other things I pass over that maybe will strike you as important, can come up in our conversation afterward. One of the striking things, even though we talk about Paul the pastor, is that he addresses this letter, like most of his other letters, with several other authors. It's Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy who are writing to the church. And even if Paul's voice kind of takes over, it's, I think, more than symbolically significant that he is writing with a missionary team. Paul's own time in Thessalonica was as part of a team, and his continued care for the church, his prayers 
are not simply an individual endeavor, but they're part of that teamwork, uh, that partnership in the gospel. Sylvanus and Timothy are sent independently and together by Paul to continue helping to form the churches. Um, But in Paul's mind, he's part of a missionary band. Even if he, in some letters, emphasizes his own particular apostolic call, um, Paul doesn't work alone. He has, in fact, a fairly wide group of men and women that he calls fellow workers. Um, Some of them share imprisonment with him. Many of them share his hardships. Some of them, like Priscilla and Aquila, um, seem to be responsible for saving Paul's life in a difficult situation. So Paul is part of a very large network. And that he has such a strong personality and such a strong voice should not obscure the fact that he's not a loner. I think um, for many of us in North America, this is um, one of the greatest challenges of pastoring, I would say, is the kind of loneliness or the kind of isolation that there can be um, as a minister. Um, The couple years that I spent as part of a church staff, I had the the good fortune of being an associate with a very wise senior minister and having a couple other people on the staff team. And so for me, the experience of of learning ministry and of participating in ministry was very communal. But I see many of my students heading out into places where they may be the only one. Uh, I've struggled as a parishioner to know how to be of support to my pastor who in some ways, in, in healthy ways, needs to have a certain amount of distance from the congregation. Um, I don't know, maybe some of you are getting this right or closer to right uh, than others of us, but I hope that's a topic of conversation in your groups and around the table, where to find the kind of community to sustain a healthy ministry. Um, and I would encourage you not only to talk to one another, but I'm just going gonna to pick on Anne. Um, just to say that, you know, how is this done in Egypt? Um, how do pastors sustain life in ministry over the long term um, with that struggle of loneliness? Um, are there different ways to configure pastoral teams, perhaps? So I'll just invite that as a, an ongoing conversation. Paul writes to a group that he calls the church or the assembly Ecclesia, and you've probably heard sermons based on word studies of this, this uh, term, ecclesia. Um, it's, it's a common term, it's the common term for the group of citizens in a Greek city. If you gather all the citizens together, they're the ecclesia, at least the people with voting rights. It's also a term that the Greek translations of Scripture use for the congregation of Israel. So at one level to the Thessalonians, It's uh, a common term repurposed for their gathering. In fact, if you press the political side of it, it suggests that even though there is an ecclesia of the Thessalonians, ruled by politarchs, represented by the demos, the council, there is another ecclesia, the ecclesia of God, the city of God, to use a a later author's terminology, um, within Thessalonica itself there is this other assembly oriented toward God that is organized by the politics of God's kingdom. And this church is in relationship, we'll see, with churches in many other locations. 
Paul mentions in particular the ecclesia in Judea, where the gospel first went forth. There are other gatherings <clears throat> elsewhere in Macedonia, up in Philippi, or in Achaia, in Corinth, where Paul now is. The church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so it's a little puzzling to, to know how exactly to understand the in the Father. Um, Malherby suggests this is actually an instrumental, the church that is called forth by God's action, which is a possible meaning of, of in in Greek. Um, but it also may mean that this is, instead of being primarily defined by their location in Thessalonica or in Macedonia, that their orientation is from the fact that they belong to God. They belong in relationship with God. So in, in a kind of metaphorical sense. Um, similar to the way Paul will speak over and over again about relationships in Christ, about life in Christ. God here is named Father. And that's a, a way of talking that would have resonated with um, non-Jews, non-Christians in the Greco-Roman world. Um, it's not a common way of referring to God, but it can refer to God, it can speak of God as the creator of all things. Stoic philosophers like to think of the universe as a cosmic city of gods and humans, uh, and they could speak about God or the gods as the kind of father of all humanity, um, thinking about a common humanity. In the Old Testament, in a couple key places, um, God is spoken of as Israel's father. And even more often, God speaks to Israel and calls Israel, my son, my child. And this way of speaking about God as father um, is, a, is a, a way of speaking that is increasingly in evidence in Hellenistic Judaism. And interestingly, it's a way that Jews like Philo and Josephus, who are trying to translate their faith into terms that Romans and Greeks can understand, they will speak about God as the father of humankind or as the father of all things. I think what's distinctive about Paul's speech is that God is father, certainly of the Thessalonians, but father first and foremost of Jesus Christ. And it's in that specification as God of God as the Father of Jesus Christ, of the one who sent his Son, of the one who raised his Son from the dead, that God's fatherhood of believers makes sense. Our being God's children is because of our relationship with God's child, God's Son, Jesus Christ. Um, in other letters, Paul speaks about the Spirit in Galatians and Romans as the spirit of adoption or the spirit of sonship, the spirit coming into our hearts that enables us to recognize, embrace God as the Father. So there's a, there's a whole story implied in this term, God the Father. God, not only the creator, but first and foremost, the Father of Jesus Christ, the Son who gave himself for us, the Son God gave for God's enemies the son that God has raised from the dead, exalted, and who is coming again. And that story embraces the whole first chapter as we're reminded at the end about God as the one whose son is in heaven and is coming again, the one who will rescue us from the wrath that is coming.
Jesus is referred to here as the anointed one. Um, if we were speaking Hebrew, we would be speaking about the Mashiach, the Messiah. Um, this is virtually, uh, it's a title that gets attached to Jesus' name, um, and it's a, a way, I think, of, of Paul continuing to keep in mind that although Jesus is sent to the Gentiles as the risen Lord of all, he is the one expected by Israel, the one promised to Israel. That in speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, we have, as Karl Barth would say, even in the name Jesus Christ, a reminder, Christ, the, the Davidic heritage, the the promises to Israel, Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's hopes, and then this Greek name, Jesus, equivalent for Joshua. But in that Greek name, the openness toward all the rest of us who in him are adopted into God's family. And Jesus Christ is named Lord. In fact, he'll be named the Lord elsewhere in the letter. This is one of the speech habits that Paul inherits from the very earliest church. Uh, we were talking earlier about what sorts of traditions might be floating around out there that we don't have access to any longer. Um, Paul has a phrase that he drops in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's actually a prayer, Maranatha, our Lord, come. And Maran is Aramaic for our Lord. Uh, already, before the church moved into the Greek-speaking world. Jesus is confessed as, recognized as Lord. And for Jews, that's a really significant title because that's the circumlocution for the very special, particular name of God. The Lord, Adonai, Maran, Kurios. It's also a term that has political connotations because um, the Thessalonians know a Kurios as well the emperor in Rome, whose temple is in their forum, symbols of whose power are scattered all over the city. The Lord who guarantees their free trade, their social harmony, their peace with the gods and with other peoples. And so to confess Jesus Christ as Lord is at least implicitly, if not explicitly, as apparently um, the opponents of Paul in Acts 17 recognize, is to claim that there is another ultimate power, a power greater than Caesar's own. Whether or not that is a direct threat to the rulers of this world seems to be an open question in Paul's letters. Um, but certainly the ultimacy of the claims made by the living Son of God in Rome um, are called into question by speaking of the living Son of God in heaven who reigns at God's right hand and who is coming again. Well, that's a lot to pull out of an address, but Paul has this form of address in every one of his letters with slight variations. To speak about God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in one breath is to define each by relationship with the other. And to speak about churches that are called into being by God and oriented toward God's kingdom is to suggest that intrinsic to the nature of this gathering is a politics, a way of being together that is modeled on the character of its king, God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Um, one final thing just to, to mention, and this is, is clear actually in what probably again is an earlier piece of tradition in 1 Corinthians 8, but one of the early ways that Christians like Paul have to make sense of the relationship between God and Jesus, the anointed one, is um, to, to take what in the Old Testament is often a double name for God, the Lord God, and to speak generally of God the Father as God, Theos, and not exclusively, but often um, and predominantly to use Lord of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians 8, 6 echoes the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It says, for us, though there are many so-called gods, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Um, Richard Bauckham and Tom Wright and Larry Hurtado and others have talked about God's identity being narratively explicated. Uh, as it is in Israel's scriptures, I am the Lord your God who called you out of Egypt. There's a story that gives meaning to the name of God. For the earliest Christians, God's story now is inextricably tied to the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Born of a woman, crucified, raised from the dead, exalted to God's right hand. Um, here Paul is not doing theology in an explicit mode, but you see this pattern of speech um, is really understood. Um, it's now God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to whom the Thessalonians orient their life. <clears throat> Grace to you in peace. Common greeting um, tweaked by Paul where hello becomes now uh, a reminder of God's gift and the traditional Jewish greeting of peace in its Greek form coupled with that. Paul's thanksgiving, uh, if we move on to verses 2 and 3, um, Paul's thanksgiving reminds us that Paul is regularly in prayer for his churches. Um, Anne challenged us last night. I certainly felt convicted by uh, this. Challenged us to pray, to talk to God about our flock. Um, and I, I guess I was convicted how little I pray for my students uh, compared to how much I should be praying for them. Praying for their well-being, but also praying for insight to know how to teach. Praying for insight to know how to understand. Paul speaks here as if he has regular times of prayer, always in my prayers, making mention of you, always remembering you. He's got a pattern into which the Thessalonians and his concerns for them, his thanksgiving for them, fits. And um, this note of thanks is for all of you. We're going to see this over and over in this letter, but Paul already is using a you plural throughout the letter, but he adds all to it over and over again. He doesn't want anyone to mistake that he's writing to them as a group, all of them. And again, last night as we were led to reflect on our congregations as a group and as individuals, um, Paul's language is going after that same thing, I think. We give thanks to God for all of you. We mention you in our prayers we constantly remember before God, before our God and Father. Notice how Paul, again, emphasizes their connection. If God is our Father, then we are brothers and sisters, as he will call them often in this letter as well. Um, and what does he make mention of? What does he remember? There's this beautiful triad of faith, hope, and love 
But uh, if you're looking at something like the NRSV, which is following the structure of the Greek a little bit more closely, you'll notice that faith, hope, and love show up as the modifiers of three other words. These are the motivations, but the actions that they produce are what get the rhetorical prominence. Their work, their labor, their steadfastness, or their endurance. Their faith, their hope, their love are expressed in this long, obedient, laborious, and yet joyful following of Christ. The NIV is a little bit more paraphrastic at this point. Um, it uh, supplies verbs that are perhaps implied by the ofs. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. Something like that, I think, is called for. What is this relationship between faith and work, love and labor, endurance and hope? Um, it invites us in preaching to explicate that. And Paul will do so in the letter in various ways. He'll come back to this triad, either singly or, or in um, other groupings. Um, I haven't actually read the scholarly monographs on this, but based on um, the best work that Mal Herbie knows, at least, it appears that um, this particular triad, faith, hope, and love, is actually a Pauline creation. Or put another way, we don't have authors before Paul speaking about these three together as a kind of trinity of virtues. Although, of course, um, Second Temple Judaism has lots to say about faith and hope and love. Um, this particular combination. And um, I keep saying faith, hope, and love as if 1 Corinthians is the base text, but here the order faith, love, and hope is um, the way Paul puts it. I think what's key in, in this is that um, the things that we might think of as affective, emotional qualities, um, trust, love, hope, are nonetheless displayed in a pattern of life. It's because of their loyalty to God that they are working. It's because of their love for God and for the saints that they labor. It's because of their hope in what Jesus Christ has done and what he continues to do and in his return that they endure in the present. Paul moves on in verse 4 to speak about God and he mentions God's love for them and he mentions God's choosing them. And I think looking not only at 1 Thessalonians but at the shape of Paul's theology more widely as much as he will, in this letter, emphasize their pattern of life, their response, uh, even their serving as examples for others, it's clear that God's action is prior to and continues to be foundational to everything that they are doing. He'll speak in, in the next chapter about God working in them, working through them. Here, he reminds them that their faith and love and hope are generated by God's prior love for them, by God's gracious choosing of them. Um, this idea of being loved by God is one of the ways that Israel learns to talk about its own election. Um, there are different theories 
that you can find in Jewish literature for why has Israel been chosen. Different theories you find in the Old Testament. Um, but one of the clearest, and, and I think it becomes, for Paul at least, the dominant explanation, is found in Deuteronomy. It's not because you were more numerous than other nations. It's not because of any quality of yours. It's because the Lord set his heart on you in love. Like Ultimately, there's no explanation for election other than God's love. God loved your ancestors and so made promises to them and their descendants. When Paul wrestles with the place of Israel in God's plan in light of Jesus coming and in light of the mixed reception of the Messiah, in light, in fact, of the rejection of the gospel by many of his kinspeople, at the end of Romans 11, the very last word he has to say is that they are beloved on account of the ancestors. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And when he imagines this triumph of mercy, God's mercy on disobedient Gentiles like us, God's mercy on disobedient Israel, there's still an asymmetry in that mercy because the mercy of God to Israel is a special revelation of God's love and God's fidelity to the promises made to their ancestors. And the only explanation that Paul or the Deuteronomy can come up with is God is a God who loves freely and profligately and faithfully. Well, how do we know that God has loved you, brothers and sisters? That God has chosen you in love? When well, verse 5, it's because the message of the gospel came to you not just with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We see God's love because God has worked powerfully among you through the preaching of the word. Notice here again, the emphasis is on God's making the first move. Their response is possible because God has shown up in power and with the Holy Spirit and with a word full of conviction. God has also shown up in the second half of the verse uh, in the persons of the messengers. And this is a place, and there will be many of these in this letter, where I'm hesitant to follow in Paul's footsteps. But Paul is not going to allow there to be much of a gap at all between the message and the messengers. God is at work in having entrusted the gospel to Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy to people whose lives embody, in a visible way, the self-giving of Christ. So God has shown up with power, with the Spirit, with a convicting message, and with messengers who proved to show in their lives the truthfulness of the message that they proclaimed. And yet, it's not ultimately about Paul or Sylvanus and Timothy. He says in verse 6, "'You became imitators of us and of the Lord.'" It's, it's puzzled readers of the New Testament for centuries that Paul has so little to tell us about the life of Jesus. Nothing like the stories, the narratives that we get in the Gospels. And yet the figure, the character of Jesus that emerges in Paul's letters, I would argue is deeply compatible with the life that is portrayed for us in the four Gospels. It's precisely in the self-giving 
of Jesus for us, that Paul imitates Jesus in his own ministry, and that the Thessalonians themselves will imitate this pattern of life. So whatever Paul taught them about Jesus, it would have been, I would say, the same character that we meet in our four Gospels. In fact, if it were not, I think it would be impossible to explain what Paul actually does when he speaks about imitating the Lord, or what he does in these little summary statements, like the beautiful one in Galatians 2, Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the one Paul says, who now lives in me. And it's because this one lives in me that the life I live now in the flesh, I live through the faith of the Son of God. It's because of that that Paul can be an imitator of Christ that others can, imita- uh, can m- model their lives after. In particular, the way that they imitate the Lord here in the second half of verse 6, though, is that they are full of joy and of the Holy Spirit even in the midst of persecution. They have received the word along with suffering. From the very beginning, they have been under pressure. The kinds of pressures faced by converts, perhaps exacerbated by Paul's own very public and very um, uh, shameful interaction with civic authorities as he's forced out of town. But God's choice is evidenced in their response, in their um, joyful reception of the word. So in verse 7, Paul says, you are not only imitators, but you in turn are imitated by others. You have become examples to all those who have faith. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, that's the general region of of Macedonia and Greece today, but even beyond that. They're examples, Paul says, because the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Um, There are very few indications in Paul's letters that Paul's congregations um, were commanded to share the gospel. Um, In fact, you'll look very hard to find evidence that Paul sought to train them in evangelism. Um, Interestingly, though, that seems to have happened as an outgrowth of Paul's teaching and preaching among them. So perhaps we just don't see it in the letters because that's not a topic, or perhaps intrinsic to the gospel is the idea that this is a message, this is news that needs to be shared. So the Philippian church, founded not long ago, is already sending money and sending messengers to support Paul while he's in Thessalonica. They'll send money to him when he's in Corinth. And the Thessalonians themselves too, even though a very young church, whether it's by people traveling into Thessalonica and meeting believers, or whether it's some of them traveling on business, whether it's them speaking with family members and social networks, the message is spreading. It's going forth. And in verses 9 and 10, people related to the Thessalonians in their social networks, in their business networks, are learning that they have had a a tremendous transformation in the very most basic orientation of their life. They have turned, Paul says. They report that you turned to God from idols, that you have become slaves of a living and true God, and that you are waiting expectantly for his son from heaven, the one raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. 
there's a lot here, and um, looking at the time, I think I'll just highlight a couple of things that we'll want to come back to. Um, one is that Paul has, in reminding them and thanking God for them, reminding them of his initial reception and of God's action in that, Paul's actually gesturing toward a much larger story. The Thessalonians are learning that they are part of a much greater plan of God, a plan that has its roots in promises made to Israel, a plan that embraces them, that is also looking toward a future date, perhaps very near, when Jesus, the Messiah raised from the dead, will be back present with them as the Lord who will rule. And there's a reference to the coming wrath which speaks in, in Paul's preaching of a time of judgment, a time of reckoning, where the God of justice will put things right. And for those who are in opposition to God, it's a time of judgment and condemnation. For those who trust in God, who are in a right relationship to God through Jesus Christ, it's a time of vindication and hope. And this is a community under tremendous pressure, suffering, dislocation, and disorientation, and persecution. And they are buoyed by the hope that all things are in God's hands, that God is a just judge, and that God and God's reign will come in person, in full, very soon. That's another point at which, at least for many of us Christians growing up in America, um, we might find the Thessalonians a little strange, their hopes a little enthusiastic, to use an old 19th century word, um, their vision of judgment perhaps um, a little bit morally suspect. Um, we'll want to unpack some of that together as well. The idea of turning to God to serve a living and true God uh, I wanted to read a longer section, but if you um, have access to either the deuterocanonical literature in a print Bible or you can get on the internet and see it, um, there's a, a work known as the Wisdom of Solomon that probably dates from the first century. It's a work whose ideas are quite representative of thoughts, uh, philosophy, um, current in Hellenistic Judaism. If Paul didn't know the work, he knew an awful lot of its traditions and teachings, but in Wisdom 13 to 15, there's a long section about the folly of idolatry that draws heavily on the Psalms and on Isaiah. Um, it speaks about the futility of the dominant religion in a place like Thessalonica, like Macedonia. It speaks of it in actually fairly dismissive terms. But it also speaks of the mercy of the living and true God who has not left himself without a witness, who in fact has chosen Israel and through Israel offers light to the nations. And this terminology of the living God or the true God um, shows up here, it shows up in Joseph and Aseneth, it shows up in Philo and Josephus. This is a way that Jews could talk uh, about their God in a way that would connect with the non-Jewish world around them. And early Christians picked up on this as well. And I think it's, it's actually um, a beautiful combination. God is the true God, not in some abstract sense, 
but because God is truly alive. As opposed to these dead idols, God is the one who ever lives, who creates all life, who sustains all life, who is our life. This living God is the one whose life and power have raised Jesus from the dead to life everlasting. And it's this God whose life is the source of our life. And the God who invites us ultimately to share that life with him forever. The living God. As we look tomorrow at chapters 2 and 3, and if you read ahead, look for the ways that Paul talks about his own manner of life and see how many connections you can find to the gospel portrayals of Jesus or even to the, um, the very brief things Paul has said about the character of God. Look for the ways in which Paul's own pastoral practice coheres with and embodies the message that Paul preaches. I'm going to ask Troy to come up and give us directions about the picture before we all scatter. Thank you.